Okay, uh, we are in a series on Advent, and uh, today we're going to be looking at probably the most exciting, the most thrilling passage that you have ever, ever heard on Advent. Uh, remember that. But we need to settle something before we get to the Advent. We need to settle the election for what we're going to be doing of passages for next semester, or really probably around January-ish we're going to start it. So I need to give you the, the election results because they are in. I told you this is it. It's done. So we have a three-way tie. Wouldn't you know it? We have Life of David, Proverbs, and Isaiah. Now, we value transparency here at Redeemer, so I need to tell you this. There are rumors of voter fraud. Um, the most suspicious involves mail-in ballots. There were two dozen mail-in ballots postmarked North Korea. Very, very suspicious. Uh, the most peculiar involves uh, voter ID. Someone voted twice. Yep, twice. And you want to know their name, don't you? Harry Styles. Uh, the most grievous, the most grievous comes from a whistleblower. And so with great sadness, I must report that Laura Norris, <laughs> our accountant prodigy, was seen dumping boxes of ballots <laughs> on Amanda Reynolds, our church administrator's desk. Uh, this is very, very sad. I don't do this uh, lightly. Um, it's a big blow to many of you, I know, and especially to Bradley, because she was voting against her husband, who was just up here. <laughs> All right, so what are we going to do? we got a three-way tie. Seriously, what are we going to do? So I thought maybe I would just, like, not tell you and just say, here's what we're going to do. But then I thought, maybe God is in this process, because we did bring it before you, right? And maybe, for the first time ever, we're going to do three books at the same time. I don't know how, but I'm going to find the theme of those three books, and it doesn't mean we'll exhaust every verse in those three books, but we'll hit a theme in all three books. And so you'll get Proverbs, a theme. You'll get the life of David, that same theme. And then Isaiah, that theme. So that's what we're going to try to look at in the spring. And if it doesn't work out, well, it'll be a very, very quick series, and we'll move on to something else. <laughs> All right. So here's what we're going to do. What is Advent? Last week, we looked at what Advent is, and the answer is the arrival, right? Specifically, the arrival of someone. So today, we're going to look at why should you care about Advent, because I've asked myself that for a long time. As a pastor who has to preach on Advent or is supposed to preach on Advent uh, every year, um, it's no surprise to most of you, you already know this, the Advent is not a, an exciting topic for most pastors because you have a limited amount of passages that are done over and over again, right? So why should you care? Why should you care about Advent? Be ready now to be blown away by the most exciting, thrilling, possibly uh, the best passage you've read all year. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Here we go. We're going to start at Matthew 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What's fascinating is that's exactly how the book of the Bible, that's exactly how the Bible begins. So this is the genesis. This is the beginning. This is the origin story of someone who's arrived named Jesus. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Now Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. These are twins. By Tamar, and Perez and father was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab. Now from Perez to Abinadab, that's 450 years. So we just covered 450 years. So obviously it's not every single human being in this lineage, right? The father of Nashon, Nashon. To David is going to be four more hundred years. The father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. Now David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So strange. She had a name. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzzah, and Uzzah the father of Jotham, so there's another one, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. You keeping this straight? Good. Now, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh was the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, Josiah was the last free king in Israel's history. Everybody else is going to be in the deportation or in the exile to Babylon. And this son, this father, Josiah, was the father of Jeconiah. Now, he only was a ruler for like three months. He was so bad, his whole family line was cursed. And his brothers, because his brothers ended up ruling, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon... You have Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, this is the one that led the uh, Israelites back from Babylon to Jerusalem. So this was the first return. The father of Abid, Abid the father of Elakim, Elakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of, I didn't know how to pronounce this name. I probably didn't pronounce a lot of these names right. Mathen. And Mathen, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. We recognize someone, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we thank you that you shine on the page. We thank you that you speak us back to life. And so this morning, we are asking you to do just that. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would blow and speak us back to life. And we ask this not because we're good. Uh, We ask this because you're good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so why should you care about Advent? Matthew... The Bible, God, tells us why in this passage we just read. But apparently, Matthew missed the make it memorable memo, right? Apparently, Matthew didn't go to Communication 101 or Preaching 101 because it begins, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So basically saying, okay, everybody, get out your calculators, and your 0.5 millimeter mechanical pencils and your pocket rulers because so-and-so was the father of so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so who was the father of another so-and-so for another 17 verses. In other words, 14 generations from Abraham to David, another 14 generations from David to the exile, and then another 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. 
You cannot pick a more boring way to begin a story. I mean, what a snoozer. And you're telling, supposedly, the greatest story ever told. I mean, this is like once upon a time in Webster's Dictionary. I actually had a friend named George Zero who would read the dictionary. I thought I caught him. I walked in on him reading it, and I go, dude, are you reading the dictionary? And he's like, yeah, I'm at D. What's your problem? <laughs> Look at the 28 generations. You got 28 generations, right? So I don't know if we, we can't get it all up there, but if you have your Bible, your, your device open, there are 28 generations from Abraham to David to the exile. You probably recognize a name or two, don't you? You look in there, you recognize David at least. If you've opened the Bible and read any part of the Old Testament, you might have bumped into one of those names or two, like Jacob or Judah, maybe, I don't know. And then I want you to look at the 14 generations after the exile. Uh, this is now to Jesus in verses 11 through 16. You probably don't recognize any of them. And the reason why you, well, you do Joseph and Mary because of Christmas, right? But other than that, there's no one to recognize. In fact, the Bible ex experts don't know who these people are. In fact, they say things like the nine names from Abid to Jacob are not otherwise known to us today. So I ask you, why should you care about Advent? And so far, the answer we have from Matthew, so far, the answer we have from the Bible, so far, the answer we have from God is this, not to be inspired. Genealogies do not inspire us. Genealogies do not move you. Genealogies do not compel you. Genealogies do not reset your desires. Genealogies don't transfer trusts. Genealogies don't heal emotions and renew thinking and activate new behaviors. Do they? Did that do that for you? The greatest story ever told? Why should you care about Advent? Well, so far, there's not a lot of inspiration here. Because what, are, what is inspiration? Inspiration is designed to move you to be better, to do better, to self-improve, right? Now, the modern world calls that self-actualization. According to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this is what self-actualization means. Self-actualization is the highest level of psychological development where personal potential is finally realized. In other words, what the modern world is saying, what Maslow's hierarchy of needs are saying, is that the most important need you have is to actualize yourself. Without improving, without actualizing you, you cannot have an identity. You cannot have healthy relationships. You cannot be happy. Whatever it means. You know, I'm not really quite sure what exactly self-actualization means. But I do know this. Every one of you feel it like this. I 
need to improve. I need to improve my relationship with God. I need to improve my anxiety and my mental health issues. I need to improve the sin that's wrecking me. I need to improve this child. I need to improve my marriage. I need to improve how I relate to money. I need to improve how I relate to food. I need to improve how I relate to my job and my work. I need to improve the culture, ideologies, politics. I need, in other words, to be more. Do you know who was the first person that actually said that? It was a guy named Adam as he wrecked the whole world. I need to be more. Genealogies do not meet our need to be more. Genealogies do not inspire us. So we got a one quick application because we want applications. We got one quick application from Matthew so far. Here it is. Your greatest need is not to be inspired. Your greatest need is not to be more. So let's just let that sink in a little bit because I think the application here is so freeing because if you actually get this, let's just say you don't pursue inspiration and you don't pursue to be more. What would it look like in your life if just the need to be more wasn't present? Think about it. What would it look like if the need to be better, do better, improve, be more wasn't present, wasn't driving you, wasn't informing this area and that area. Here's one thing. You could eat breakfast before you read your Bible. You would actually be a more relaxed person. You would be less exhausted, less anxious, less depressed. You would also... Be yourself. Isn't that interesting? Because you would be less defined by your performance and less controlled by other people. You could settle in to being comfortable in your own skin. Ironically, by not self-actualizing, you actualize. The other thing would happen is that you would start loving more and needing less. If the need to be more wasn't present in your life, you would love more, need less. And the other thing I thought would be this. You would actually do things for their own sake. This is really incredibly important. All of these are important, right? I mean, amazing, life-changing things would happen if we didn't have this need to be more, this need to improve, this need to be inspired, right? But just think about it this way. You would do things for their own sake. I don't think many of us know how to do things for their own sake. I don't think many of us know how to just do a sunset for a sunset. I don't think many of us know how to 
Look at a tree just for the sake of what the tree is. I don't think many of us know how to play sports and do music and work hard just for the sake of playing sports, doing music, and working hard. I don't know many of us that know how to do the particular gifts and talents and abilities you have just for the sake of the gifts and the talents and the abilities because we're all using them to be more. So, for instance... Example number one, do things for their own sake. You don't have to read your Bible. You wouldn't have to read your Bible to prove yourself. You wouldn't have to read your Bible to find a way to connect to God's love and acceptance. You could just read your Bible because that's where God shows up. You could just read your Bible because that's where he speaks me back to life. Example number two, you don't have to work and serve and do good to be liked. You could work, serve, and do good because you like it. Because God packed blessing into these things that he has made and given us to bless us, to like it, and to actually then turn around and bless others with it. This, right now, this one application of removing the need to be more would change the world, would change you. All right, why should you care about Advent? Well, Matthew, the Bible, God says this. Your greatest need is not to be inspired. Okay, your greatest need is not to be more. Got it. Your greatest need is found in the genealogy of Jesus. The text is actually going to say, Advent is your greatest need. So let's look at how. I'm going to do a quick text flyover. So we're going to fly over the textual terrain. I know Ben's going to keep up with me and just kind of guess where I'm going when I'm talking. He's been doing really well. Everybody's been doing really well over there. So we're going to do a quick textual flyover. So if you see the name up there, we're going to go with it. We're going to start with Abraham. See Abraham? Sure, he's a big deal in the Bible. Everybody knows he's a big deal in the Bible. But did you know that his family was at the Tower of Babel? What's the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel is right after the flood, right? The world starts over again, and you have Noah's family. And that becomes the world. And now the world is one culture and one language. And now this one culture with one language, this one people, this is Abraham's family was there, they engaged in a cosmic conspiracy and a cosmic insurrection that they wanted to build something that would take God's place. And they wanted to partner with the unseen realm and the human realm. And Abraham's father was there. His, par- his, his family is from there. That's his people. Did you know that Abraham gave his wife his wife, to a king to sleep with to save his own skin. Yeah, he's a big deal in the Bible. Uh, This is Jesus' family. Just start with Abraham. Let's go to Jacob. This is probably my least favorite person in all the Bible. And there are a lot of characters in the Bible. I really have a hard time... I have a hard time with Jacob. I'm confessing it to you right now. I have a hard time. I judge Jacob. (laughs) It's really, I'm glad I got that off my chest. He deceives his dad. He steals the honor of the family. 
that should have gone to Esau, who was a cool dude. He steals it. Esau is a Texan. Get her done. Jacob is a victim. Who can I blame? This is Jesus' family. Of all the 12 sons of Jacob, of all the 12 sons of Jacob, Judah is mentioned. So let's talk about Judah, shall we? Sure, he's, you know, the, the royal line, the lion of the tribe of Judah comes through Judah's line. Got it. Fantastic. But did you know how Judah fathered Perez and Zerah? Do you see what it says in verse 3? By Tamar. Who's Tamar? Well, Tamar is his daughter-in-law two times over. So he's already had two sons that she was married to. First one died. The second son, according to tradition, is supposed to come in. Marries Tamar. He has a third son. He withholds it. And for some reason, something happens. Well, here's what happens. It's a long story, but it goes like this. Judah likes to go to the strip clubs frequently. Tamar knows this. So she dresses appropriately or undresses appropriately, seduces him, sleeps with him. Perez and Zerah are born. This is Jesus' family. How about Rahab? Rahab, you probably have heard that name. Maybe she's a high-dollar escort. According to ancient documents, she slept with the most important men and the most powerful men in the ancient world in that day. She's also not an Israelite. This is Jesus' family. Let's go to Ruth. Yes, Ruth, man. She has that killer quote. Remember the killer quote? Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. I mean, everybody has that on their mugs. They got them on their walls. Everyone, church, unchurched. Your people are my people. Your God, my God, except that part. But most every part of it's there, right? That's actually what Churchill said to FDR when the Nazis were sweeping the world and the world was being overwhelmed in darkness and this, this friendship was forged between these two world leaders and he quoted that to FDR. Amazing, right? But did you know that Ruth was a Moabite? Okay, do you, do you know what a Moabite is? Well, let me, do you remember a guy named Lot? He was a nephew of Abraham. Lot barely escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was turned into a pillar of salt. He escaped because he's associated with Abraham. Abraham represented him. That's the only reason why he escaped. Well, Lot has two daughters. They're hiding in a cave. I'm just going to read the text because it's, it's embarrassing just for me to like say it. Now, Lot went out, lived in the hills with his two daughters. He was afraid to live there, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn daughter said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of men in the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made him drink that night. First daughter sleeps with him. Made drink the second night. Second daughter sleeps with him. They get pregnant. The children of the firstborn are the Moabites. The children of the second one are the Ammonites. All unbelievable, vicious people and brutal people that beat on Israel's history for all that generation genealogies that we see. This is Jesus' family. The wife of Uriah, let's just say it, Bathsheba, 
David sees her. David takes her, probably rapes her. She has a child. She uh, has to get rid of, he has to get rid of the husband, Uriah. That's why Uriah is mentioned here. That's why it's just Uriah's wife. It's not a slight because she's a woman. It's to absolutely emphasize what happened. Uriah was a loyal, mighty man. They were legendary in those days. They were the kind of men that David said, he just said, man, I'm thirsty. I wish I could drink from my home well. But it was guarded by a garrison of Philistines and two of his mighty men. Didn't even, weren't asked, weren't commanded. They just fought their way through, got him water and brought it back and handed it to him. They were loyal. I mean, Uriah, he was so loyal, he was called back from the battle. David wanted him to sleep with his wife to cover it all up, but he was so loyal, such a loyal warrior, he wouldn't go into his wife while his men were out there fighting. So David murders him and covers it up. This is Jesus' family. The rest, I mean the rest of the list up there, some you might know, some you don't. Most of them are all evil kings. Manasseh is one of the most evil people, maybe, of all the kings. Ahab, his children are up there. And then there's a good king or two spotted in there, right? And then there's a bunch of no-names, nine of them. Nobody knows who these people are. I mean, they know that they're historically present, but nobody knows anything about them. This is Jesus' family. So why should you care about Advent? Seriously, why should we care about Advent? The Bible, God is saying to you, because your greatest need is their greatest need. The genealogy's greatest need. What's their greatest need? It's your greatest need. The greatest need is not to be inspired. The greatest need is to experience grace. Your greatest need is not to improve. Your greatest need is to experience grace. Your greatest need is not to read your Bible before you eat. Your greatest need is to experience grace. Let that sink in. So let's say you experience grace. What would that look like? Let's just start with traditional culture. Traditional cultures are built, like the time in the Bible, and maybe your family was a traditional family, or maybe uh, the United States was a traditional culture for a while, and then you got traditional cultures on the other parts uh, of the world. Traditional cultures are built on, they're built around Honor and shame. Japan's a classic case. The Middle East is a classic case right now. And then there's pockets of it all over the United States. So your traditional culture means you're building your culture. You're building everything around these highest values of honor and shame. So self-improvement, self-actualization attains honor. Self-improvement, self-actualization, to use the modern term, avoids shame. So what Advent does is this. Advent comes along and Jesus gives you his honor. Advent says Jesus comes up to Tamar. Here's my honor. Jesus goes up to Judah. Judah. Here's my honor. 
Jesus goes up to David after all that he just did, to Uriah and Bathsheba. David, here's my honor. That's Advent. Experience that. But you know what else it means? It also means this, is that Jesus comes to that genealogy and he takes the shame away. In other words, Jesus goes up to Mar and says, I'm taking your shame to the cross with me. Jesus goes up to Judah, I'm taking your shame to the cross with me. That's why you should care. I'm taking your shame, Jeff, to the cross with me. By the way, I, I just gave you all my honor, all my medals, all my righteousness, all my obedience, all my achievements, all my glory, and there is no one that has more glory than me. <laughs> That'll change your life. What about a modern culture, though? Traditional cultures seem to be fading. We're now inventing new genders. We're now inventing new ways of doing a lot of things, right? So we're in a modern culture, a modern culture that builds everything around self-actualization. And self-actualization can mean anything because it's about self-activating. It's self-creating. It's us taking God's place and saying, we will declare what's true. We will declare what's right. We will declare what's happiness. We will do that, right? So here's what happens. Self-improvement in a modern culture is how you find your identity. It's how you find a gender. It's how you find uh, healthy relationships. It's how you find a righteous culture. You self-actualize. The way to avoid being canceled in these areas is to self-actualize according to whatever the standards and ideologies and rules of the day, right? And that's why it can always change, and it can always evolve, and it can always devolve, and it can always move and shake and shift, because the goal is not some spiritual fabric or moral fabric called creation. It's whatever I think it is, and feel it to be, and want it to be, okay? So what, is it, what does Advent do here? Here's what Advent does to a modern culture of self-actualization. It's going to help it. It's going to come up to the modern culture, and Advent's going to say, self-actualization is a myth. Advent's going to come up to a self-activating culture and say, modern people are just like Judah. Modern people are just like Tamar. Modern people are just like Bathsheba. Modern people are just like David. It's going to walk up to you and me and say, modern people... You are just like them. Self-actualization, self-actualizing is a myth. But it's also going to do this. It's also going to say to this culture, but there is something real. This might be a myth, but this is real. This is real, and what's real is grace. Because grace arrives, grace intervenes, grace breaks in, grace justifies, grace sanctifies, Grace puts people back together again. Grace gives you an identity. Grace gives you healthy relationships. 
Grace restores and makes all things new. And so grace actually relaxes you. You become less anxious. Grace actually puts you back together again with a real identity that you become yourself. You don't become a shapeshifter. The most fundamental layer of your identity is now the love and the acceptance, the honor and the removal of shame of another. Grace. And you finally are comfortable in your skin. You finally can now handle things not to use them to do something for you, but you handle them because they're good in and of themselves and you actually enjoy it. I mean, why do we always say, oh, he loves the game, she loves the game, for the love of the game, because everybody wants that to be true, but nobody can make it happen. Because they really do it for their identity. And they really do it for human applause, their identity. And there's this myth, this dream, can you just do it because you love it? Can you just do it because it's incredible just to watch someone actually do it? Why should you care about Advent? Not to be inspired, not to be more, but because your greatest need is to experience grace. All right, let's end this way. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, verse 1. Son of David, son of Abraham. Now, when we see son of David, what are we supposed to think and feel? Pretty much, it's on the tip of your tongue, you know it. Jesus is what? The king. All right. Let's go to son of Abraham. What are you supposed to think and feel? Son of Isaac? I'm supposed to think of Isaac? That's kind of odd. That's kind of strange. Unless it's finally happening. And you're saying, what, Jeff? Jeepers, what are you talking about? Unless the most controversial thing to ever happen in a Bible is finally given clarity. Unless the most difficult passage in all the Bible is finally being solved. Unless the most horrific command in all the scriptures is finally being resolved. Once upon a time ago in a world far away, God said to Abraham, you will have a son who will save the world. And time marched on, and there was no son. And now the couple's pushing a hundred. But in between that first time God said it, he would break in every once in a while and say, you will have a son who will save the world. Well, now when they're pushing hundred, a hundred, and he says it again, Sarah laughs. Yeah, right. And then not too long after that, they have a son. And they name him Isaac. Can you imagine the joy? (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, just beyond a bunch of other things that I don't even want to talk about. But imagine the excitement. Do you imagine the joy? Do you imagine the life? Do you imagine like... Even just their understanding of God, when God answered, when God did what he said, when God broke in, when grace happened and they experienced it, can't even imagine what it was like in that house and what it felt like 
and what it did for the community and for everyone in the culture that knew about it. And the good news about what just happened that went out and everybody that heard it was like, you got to be kidding me. And then, sacrificed your son, your only son. And then the most controversial passage in all the Bible happens. And then the most horrific command to ever be heard in the scripture happens. And then the most difficult thing to ever happen in the Bible happens. Sacrifice your son, your only son. And everyone freaks out. And to this day, Bible scholars freak out. There are denominations <clears throat> that have formed theological perspectives based on that passage. But what if there is no controversy? There is no horrificness. It's not that difficult. What if it wasn't about Isaac? To begin with. What if it was about always another son of Abraham? A son who will be sacrificed to save the world. Why should you care about Advent? Not to be inspired. Not to be more, but because your greatest need is to experience grace. And his name is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Amen.